Welcome to the Sunday Service Podcast of First Universalist Church, a Unitarian Universalist congregation located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are a radically welcoming and progressive religious community, deeply committed to love, justice, spiritual growth, and living out our values in the world. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. For our call to worship today, I want to invite you to turn to your hymnal and at the very back and find the reading number 567. It is a poem by Marge Piercy that we will read responsively. So 567, and it's the poem called To Be of Use. So I will read the first couple of lines and you will read the italicized lines. I want to be with people who submerge in the task. Who stand in the line and haul in their places. The work of the world is common as mud. Botched, it smears the hands, crumbles to dust. Greek amorphous for wine or oil, hopey vases that held corn are put in museums, but you know that they were meant to be used. The picture... Come, let us worship together. During the summer after my sophomore year of high school, my grandfather, disappointed in the sorry state of his grandson's religious upbringing, sent my cousin and me on a six-week teen tour to Israel. During one morning of that adventure, our group hiked through a mostly dried up riverbed until we got to the place where the creek became a waterfall and dropped 30 feet. There, were no, there was no footpath down to the next level. The preferred way to go was to jump off a cliff into a pool of water below. There was a rope that could be used to climb down a slippery, slimy wall of rocks right next to the waterfall, but we were warned that that was far more dangerous than jumping. My cousin, not previously someone I had thought of as fearless, walked to the edge of the cliff, gave one look down, backed up, took a few running steps, and jumped. The rest of our group of 30, uh, including me, were not so quick. It took four hours, um, <laughs> literally four hours, for us all to get down as each of us looked, weighed the risk, struggled with the height, and so on. We all eventually jumped and all survived, as had all the groups before us. Which fears of ours are real, and which have we constructed in our own minds? My talk this morning was initially conceived of as a time to share how I am trying to live into the racial justice mission of our church in my own life. There was going to be, and still are, three parts, signs and symbols, intentional acts, and what seems to be emerging for me from that work. But as I started working on this, I realized that part of what I needed to talk about was my own fear grounded in whiteness in engaging in racial justice work. Even talking with you today, 
I'm going to try to walk a line between genuinely sharing experiences I've had in the past two or three years without sliding into a tremendous humble brag. A humble brag is like when you post on Facebook, look at this terrible picture they took of me when they gave me that award. <laughs> I'm not here to brag. In fact, I have quite a bit of fear that the types of small steps and incremental activities in which I've been involved will at least leave at least some of you seriously underwhelmed. I know that there are many congregants who are deeply engaged in racial justice work and have built relationships and taking risks that are humbling to those of us who have not yet walked those paths. What am I doing up here? This, this could go really badly. I could, I could get impeached. Oh. <laughs> but I also know from talking with many of you that there is a question for us that hangs in the air after a great sermon from one of our ministers or when we finish the last page of a book that confronts racial injustice. We believe, we think we understand, but what are our roles? Sometimes the call is clear and the call is to protest, like when they're putting babies in prison or when they're shooting people in your own backyard. Um, but how am I supposed to embody racial justice in my own life? There's no instruction manual and there's not necessarily one right formula for each person. So this talk is about how I have been trying to work it. I am managing my fear around being judged, yes, by you, um, as a trade-off to hoping to start a larger conversation about how we do the work of racial justice in our own lives. I think we need to share more of these stories to build capacity and solidarity and to manage our own fears. So let's talk about signs and symbols and fears. November 13th, 2015 was the Paris nightclub bombing in which 130 people were killed. Fresh out of 24 hours of Heather Hackman racial justice training, I took notice of how many people changed their Facebook profile pictures to have a French flag overlay to show their solidarity with the French people. Yet that same year, when Walter Scott was shot in the back by a police officer in North Charleston, or when Dylan Roof killed nine black parishioners in Charleston, South Carolina, or when Samuel DuBose, well, um, you get the idea. Uh, when those events happened, there were posts and outcries and prayers, but no Black Lives Matter overlays on profile pictures. And so I thought for several days about changing my profile picture to a Black Lives Matter sign. Several days. What was the big deal? I wanted to make a statement to announce where I stood. Um, also, we had a Black Lives Matter sign, lawn sign stolen from our front yard, and you can't steal my Facebook profile picture. Um, but it made me a little nervous. Why? Well, I suppose it could be viewed as being confrontational, being out there. Um, some of my Facebook contacts are colleagues, other attorneys. Um, I don't know their views, and the tendency when one is in business is to appear somewhat politically neutral, lest you scare away potential clients or referral service, sources which really is just another way of saying that I was afraid of losing some of my privilege. As you can see, I was a little bit inside my own head. So I did it. I took the plunge, changed the picture, and basically nothing happened. I got a few likes, but nothing comparable to when I post a good food picture. Uh, people give likes to happy thoughts, and I guess Black Lives Matter is not such a happy thought. Probably people notice 
but they just don't say anything. So I sat with that for a while, and then six months later, in June of 2016, I was at uh, UUA General Assembly in Columbus, Ohio. Black Lives Unitarian Universalist, Blue, uh, had a dedicated track of seminars, um, which I, I went to nearly every one of them. Uh, the UUA was also giving out Black Lives Matter wristbands, and I grabbed a couple. I've never been much of a wristband guy, but I decided to start wearing it. I thought maybe it would start conversations and create opportunities to engage with people on the state of racial justice in our community. Uh, I wore it all the time, and I'm, I'm still wearing it um, all the time, uh, two years later, um, and pretty much nothing external has happened, um, except for this older sales clerk at the Apple Store um, and a couple of kind of live action likes from strangers. Uh, it's provoked little conversation. But here's what's really interesting for me about wearing this bracelet. I am tremendously self-conscious about it. I, all the time, but particularly when I'm around people I don't know. A community potluck while visiting friends in the Boundary Waters. The wedding of a friend's daughter. A barbecue joint in Nashville, Tennessee. Thanksgiving with my in-laws. An insurance company board meeting. Sitting in an airplane all predominantly white spaces. I'm not sure what exactly it is I'm fearful of. I think it's unexpected confrontation with conservative white people, maybe even violence. Someone will see the bracelet and start screaming at me, um, or worse. The closest I've actually gotten is that I did have a colleague tell me once at a conference that his son could probably get me a Blue Lives Matter bracelet. I think I'm afraid of that sort of thing, but on steroids. Uh, so I've been living for quite some time with this knowledge that black folks and Latinos and Muslims live every day with real, objective fears of bodily harm from a multitude of sources, and I'm afraid because of a bracelet. Uh, I realize intellectually how pathetic that is, um, and yet the self-consciousness persists. I can't I, I live with it, I can't put it in a box on a shelf and just get rid of it. It's just, kind of, it's, just, it's just kind of always there, I'm always thinking about it. On the other hand, um, the byproduct of this self-absorption is that I end up doing what I think white people need to do way more of if we're ever going to address racial inequality, uh, think more about race. Uh, and I do that now all the time, taking the census of a room, watching how people interact, noticing the advantages of having white skin, every day, multiple times a day, reminding myself to let the bracelet hang out because if my skin was a different color, I wouldn't have a choice. Okay, now that I've gotten through my little therapy session, thank you, um, payments will be at the door, um, I'm going to move on to things outside my head. Um, a few of you may recall a talk I gave three years ago about the lessons I learned during a trip to a UU conference in Birmingham and Selma for the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday and the Voting Rights March to Montgomery. Uh, one of the phrases that rang in my ears from that conference was when the Reverend Mark Morrison Reed asked all of us gathered, with whom are you in relationship? UU ministers followed the call to Selma because of their relationships with Dr. King and with other, and, and uh, Reverend Reed asked us, with whom are you in relationship? Uh, I have taken that to heart and tried to work on building relationships with people of color. I believe that intentionality creates opportunity. 
at committee meetings and seminars, there are often choices that can be made about where to sit, whom to sit next to, whom to chat with before and after the meetings. The unconscious tendency is to reconnect with the people you know best instead of the person you've met before but don't really know well. And then it's a relatively small step from chatting in a meeting to getting together for coffee or lunch. Lunch, it seems so mundane. But guess what? Lawyers of color are not besieged with white people trying to take them to lunch. Imagine that. It's actually um, a big problem because law firms make a lot of effort, at least on the surface, about trying to hire law students and law graduates of color into their firms. But when they get there, no one sponsors them or tries to connect with them. Here's another place where white fear creeps in, although this is not my particular affliction. Uh, I think many white lawyers are afraid to connect one-on-one -on -one with their colleagues of color, and they're afraid because they're worried they'll say something awkward or offensive when they're having lunch together. The irony is that I, I almost never go to lunch with a black or Latino colleague intending to talk about race, but somehow we always get around to it, and the conversations are, are always great. Um, I try to show up for events and fundraisers and seminars put on by our minority bar associations. Um, the reason for that is kind of twofold. First, I believe it's healthy to put myself in spaces where white people are in the minority, to be present and to listen to what's going on around me. Sometimes I take this a little too far. Um, half accidentally, this spring I found myself to be the only white male uh, at the Minnesota Minority Women Lawyers brunch at someone's house. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a longer story. I was invited, but they hadn't realized they invited me. Um, and the women weren't sure whether to say, thank you for coming, or what are you doing here? Um, the second reason I try to show up for a, a, events of, with you know, a lot of lawyers of color is that people tend to notice when other white people show up in these spaces. Not many white people do. It's not taken as an intrusion, but an indication that you care enough to carve out time to be there and to support the cause personally and financially. Um, and that also reinforces and builds relationships. Um, I've also started um, two new things. The first one I'm very proud of, and I really don't care if you think I'm bragging because I, I actually love this. Um, so um, I'm very involved in my county bar association, and I became chair of the magazine committee a couple years ago. We put out a magazine six times a year. And it was a time when we had just bought some new software and we were revamping things and redesigning the magazine. It, historically, most of each monthly issue would be devoted to four or five scholarly, perhaps pendulous, some might say boring, uh, articles about substantive legal topics. Every couple of years, we would do a diversity issue in which various articles would alternatively extol the benefits of a more diverse bar and wringing our collective hands over our perennial failure to make any progress on that front. Um, so one day I had a vision, not like a hot yoga kind of vision or a drug-induced vision, actually really just a big idea. Um, instead of doing long articles on substantive legal topics or wringing our hands about diversity, um, I thought, what if we simply did a collection of profiles of our members focusing on our members of color. Not only did I see an issue devoted to these profiles, but I saw them accompanied by big, beautiful pictures of the profilees, not these little headshots that lawyers tend to cake of someone staring at a camera really. <laughs> um, 
Um, the kind of pictures that you could not ignore as you thumb through the magazine. I called it Profiles in Practice and our told our committee and staff that it was going to be our stealth diversity issue. We weren't going to tell anybody we were doing a diversity issue. We were just going to do it. Um, some interesting lessons came out of working on the issue. Although we historically had a, did a poor job of recruiting a diverse pool of writers for articles in the magazine, when we featured articles about people of color, we had no trouble attracting people of color to write them. Imagine that. Uh, we instructed the writers that their interviews should be open-ended and that rather than ask the person directly being profiled about the impact of their background as a person of color or LGBT, um, let the interviewee, the interviewee take the interview where they wanted. And all the interviewees talked about how their life experiences led them to their work in the law and influenced their work. Not only was the issue a great success, but now it's an annual tradition, and the committee is putting on its third Profiles in Practice issue. And um, you probably can't see this in the, like the cheap seats, I don't know, but, um, but this, I have a copy, and you can, you can come you know, watch me drool over it when we're, when we're done, but it's, but, it, but, it's, but it's gorgeous, and it's just, it's just putting people of color out there in a way that you just can't ignore them. They're there. And, letting also, and also letting other members of our bar see that this is a place for them as well, that, that, we're, that, we're, in, that we're including them. Um, I, um, my other new idea had to do with how lawyers talk or really don't talk about race and equity issues. In connection with Profiles in Practice, I ended up attending and then joining our Bar Association's Diversity Committee. Um, for those of you who have attended racial justice trainings through church or elsewhere, you may be familiar with three categories of, of anti-racism training, diversity, cultural competence, and racial equity. Lawyers are almost entirely stuck in diversity, head counting numbers, people in law firm, counting heads in law schools, um, and our diversity committee was actually not much different, spending nearly every meeting talking about putting on seminars because lawyers have to take two elimination of bias credits every um, three years, um, and also how to improve the headcount at law firms. There was a lot of reporting on things, but very little engagement. And so I said, I had another idea, which was not, it wasn't really a vision, um, but I suggested to the chair that each month we start our meeting by spending 15 or 20 minutes discussing an article on some issue of equity, not for credit, um, but the, with the goal of deepening the connections between us and practicing how we talk about race and creating a more meaningful experience in the meetings. The chair agreed, but she told me I had to go pick the articles. Um, and so I picked articles on unconscious bias in the legal profession and white privilege. And we had had deep and moving conversations over the last 18 months. I don't pick, all the, I don't pick the articles anymore. Um, but it turned out we had a group of people who were well-read and familiar with white privilege and similar concepts. We had discussions that, about, that our members clearly were not having in their workplaces. We created space for people of color to speak their truth about what was going on. I remember particularly when Philando Castile was killed, um, we had a long meeting, a long discussion um, where people talked about their fears for their children. Um, just driving, you know, teenagers driving to work to get to their after school job. Uh, what's kind of most encouraging in this is that one of our members exported the same idea to another regular meeting group he had, and so now they're having discussions on race. And it's the kind of replicable and scalable thing that my kind of next task is to take it to other places in our bar association and take it to other bar associations as well. So, you know, to this point, I've been talking with all of you about a series of, you know, relatively small acts. 
I could have continued to go along with my small acts, thinking, well, you know, this is what I do. I'm not, I don't know if there's much more here. Um, but recently, I've begun noticing a shift. It seems that the connections, the relationship building, the showing up, the listening, um, does add up to more than the sum of its parts. There's some intangible point. When you become regarded by others as someone who is an advocate for equity, and your role starts to change. So nearly all of my public speaking is about legal ethics. But last year, I was asked to present a half-hour book review on Tim Wise's White Like Me. And so all of a sudden, there I was, speaking to a room of about 50 lawyers, 48 of whom were older white men, um, all potential clients of mine. I represent lawyers for a living. I speak to lawyers because they're, they're, that's my marketing. And so here I am talking to this room of lawyers about and explaining Tim Wise's views on white privilege. And the whole time I'm thinking, there's this voice in my head saying, what are you doing? You really need to sit down right now. And I got lower marks for that presentation than I get for any of my ethics presentations. And I can't figure out if it's because I was off my game that day or because it was the subject matter that people didn't like. Um, so people within the Bar Association have kind of gotten to know that um, sometimes Eric goes off on a little rant every now and again. I've heard the expression, oh, someone put a quarter in Eric. Um, <laughs> but this spring, I've had two occasions to step up and speak out on racial justice in committee meetings. One was um, to advocate for the appointment of a black lawyer to the next officer position in our association from amongst several very well-qualified applicants, um, not simply because he was black, because I saw it as an opportunity for us to double down on the relationship building that we had been doing for several years. Um, again, I heard that, what are you doing voice? I was just kind of out there talking, talking, talking. Um, and I was really very concerned I was stepping into big, some big mistakes. Um, but then one of the lawyers on the committee thanked me afterwards for speaking out, which um, does have an effect of emboldening me a, a little bit. Um, and then at a recent diversity committee meeting, a newer member, an older white lawyer, made a, and I should say, as I get into this, you know, I am still that person. I can remember just um, last fall, during the height of kind of the Me Too movement, being in an elevator with two guys who work on the same floor that I work on, and one of them um, starts to tell a joke. And I can tell this isn't gonna go in the right direction, but I don't, I, I speak a lot, and I don't, I, I'm, I'm, I, in the moment, I, I can be a pretty off-the-cuff kind of guy, but in the moment, I'm not unlike anybody else here who finds themselves tongue-tied in the moment to say, wait, 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 you know what? Um, you know what? I don't think I want to hear this joke before I've barely heard a word. I, and we're riding up in an elevator. You're, you're, you're a little bit... So, you know, when I talked about this line between humble brags and kind of trying to be vulnerable, you know, it's really... This is, this is hard for all of us. And the, the reason these two stories are significant to me is, is because I feel like I'm actually coming into my own in terms of being able to speak out about race. So in this diversity committee meeting, this older white lawyer made some disparaging comment about freeway protests and how they were wrong because they inconvenienced people. And it was one of those moments. This is our group. We've had some great conversations. And it's one of those moments where you could look around the room 
and see everyone was having the same thought. And that thought was, oh, he just said that. No, no, I can't. I am not having this conversation. And it was like, but someone had to say something. Someone had to, someone had to interrupt something. And I actually talked for a few minutes about how, you know, it's true, freeway protest inconvenience everyone, even those who agree with the protesters. But then I kind of transitioned into this great Facebook post I read a while ago about, from Liz Loeb about the 10 plagues and the Exodus story and how they were really about making people wake up to injustice even though the plagues hurt everybody. Um, and again, someone thanked me afterwards for speaking out. So I'm, I'm, I'm learning that some of this work can build upon itself. It can change us in subtle ways and lead us to do better work. The small things add up. Now, about the title of this talk. In the Matrix, the movie, Neo Anderson, our hero, is learning that everything we see around us is an elaborate computer program um, and that's being fed into our brains. In one scene, he is taken to see the oracle, who will tell him whether he is the one, the savior. And he's in the waiting room, and there is a young boy, head shaved in Eastern-style clothing, who is holding a large spoon that seems to bend and straighten at his will. And Neo has this quizzical expression on his face. And the boy hands him the spoon and says, do not try and bend the spoon. That's impossible. Instead, only try to realize the truth. What truth? There is no spoon. There is no spoon? Then you will see that it is not the spoon that bends. It is only yourself. Later in the film, just before Neo is about to do something that seems impossible because it defies the law of physics and common sense, um, he whispers under his breath, there is no spoon. And I have to tell you that whenever I'm really anxious about a big task, despite the likelihood it will turn out fine, like an argument to the court or presenting this talk to you, I often will say to myself, there is no spoon. Some fears are not objective. They're just a construction of our own minds. And that's the struggle, isn't it? To identify the fears, to look at them, to bend them. Don't let them hold you back. Start small, there's big work to be done. And more often than not, there is no spoon. May it be so. Thanks for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, and together we give, receive, and grow in the universalist spirit of love and hope. To learn more about who we are and our ministry, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.